0: The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. If we
1: went to an art museum and we were walking around huge pieces of art, if I covered one in brown paper and I say what's going on in this picture, well, you'll not be able to see anything or or tell me. If I say, okay, you can pluck 10 holes, you might be able to see a glimpse of color, but you've no idea what's going on in the image. And until I let you pluck another 30 holes, and another 20 holes, and another 50 holes, you start to reveal what the image is of and what is going on in that painting. You can't look in isolation. That
0: is the future of healthcare. Welcome to the Future Lab podcast where I'm bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present-day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual FutureLab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. In this podcast, I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth, and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, Bodies of Data.
2: You've got teams of people looking at banks of data. It has a missing link in the chain, which is to have that human data component of it.
1: The future of healthcare is all about easy access to personalised data. It
3: really, is doing Star Wars stuff.
0: pretty used to the constant stream of information that flows around us through our devices and increasingly smart environments. And we're aware of the potential of using these analytics to make decisions, avoid mistakes, and optimise everything we do. But what about the data that flows through us? Many of us plug into wearables on a daily basis. But could we be making better use of the wealth of invisible information our bodies hold? What if we treated ourselves more like a data source? To understand ourselves in greater depth, to make better, faster and more efficient decisions and harness our body's data in beneficial new ways.
2: The way I view technology that we have around us, whether it's smartwatch or whether it's a camera, it's the same way as we function as humans. There's a bunch of sensors, there's a brain that processes, and then there's a series of actions that we choose to take or don't.
0: Gawain Morrison is Belfast born and raised with a long beard that sits on his chest in a neat plait. He's a brilliant brain and a big personality and signs off his emails to me with all the beard. He's had a pretty amazing journey so far, starting in entertainment, and ending up right at the cutting edge of exploring how data can teach us so much more about ourselves. We first crossed paths a while back because of his work in an area called empathic technology.
2: Empathetic or empathic AI is really that a machine can understand how you feel.
0: You might think empathy is one of the most human faculties. But in Gawain's line of work, it seems the machines are starting to catch up with us.
2: It's the same as we do it from human to human, where we're reading the signals from them, whether it's their movement, whether it's their voice, whether it's whether they're looking at you or not. All of this data is all being processed in real time by us as individuals to determine whether the person we're talking to has empathy for us or really just couldn't care less.
0: Increasingly, machines are being developed that can interpret the signals our bodies emit to determine our state of mind. When the intelligence of modern technology meets the ability to interpret human feeling and emotion, all kinds of possibilities open up. In this episode, we'll hear how empathic technology can help elite athletes achieve incredible feats, how it'll lead to step changes in road safety once it makes its way into all of our cars, and how it'll be used to create immersive experiences that will change the worlds of cinema, gaming, and virtual reality. The potential applications are still at fledgling stage as the technology matures and new opportunities present themselves. But for Gawain, it's already been quite an adventure. It all started back in Belfast, where he was a king of nightlife, running club nights in the city.
2: I had a record label for a bit, t-shirt company, film production, and that sort of journeyed us to where we started into doing more immersive experiences. We produced the world's first music-embedded geolocative app, for Belfast music, because we've got such a rich heritage of music here. And you could go on a tour and go to different parts of the city with the app and find out more about uh, some of the artists, what they had done there, and play a bit of the music from it.
0: Gawain and his company did the same for Literary Belfast. And from there, they started experimenting with how technology and media could be blended to create new experiences.
2: We were really looking at how to create proper immersive experiences and it was the time of alternate reality games and transmedia and all this stuff where people were looking at how to go outside the screen and use the devices in people's pockets.
0: That's when they came up with a whole new idea.
2: Which was to use human data and human body data, biometrics, to be able to have uh, controllers to a cinematic experience. We were lucky enough to get funding from the Arts Council and Northern Ireland screen here to be able to produce that. And that was the world's first emotional response horror film.
0: The idea was to dial up the fear factor to new levels by monitoring viewers' physiological responses to the horror and dynamically inserting different elements of story and sound to push their responses even further.
2: We premiered that in the South by Southwest.
0: One of the people Gawain worked with on the film was Professor Ben Knapp.
2: who was working with biometrics and he had developed his own sensor to be able to capture galvanic skin response and heart rate. This galvanic skin response, skin conductance, was a very good proxy for stress. And so being able to measure that in real time in the milliseconds meant that you could see when people were really scared or not
0: the team wanted to work out what type of content would trigger the biggest physiological responses.
2: We did some cool experiments with different types of clips with funny stuff and uh, scary stuff and disgusting stuff to see what was the genre we should probably go for in terms of writing a short film for this. It was basically boo moments and tension that got the heart going and got the body and physiology going.
0: The 10-minute film they produced, called Unsound, depicted a widow alone in a house with an apparent intruder. Audience members were hooked up to electrodes that measured physical responses like heart rate and sweat, allowing the narrative to be changed dynamically based on how the audience was reacting.
2: And we had a subsonic frequency that would make your skin crawl if you weren't scared enough. It was brilliant to watch the biometrics in real time as everybody was sort of going creeping out but didn't really know why.
0: In fact, one of the most fascinating discoveries they made was how important audio is to induce fear in an audience.
2: Some guys in the Sonic Arts Research Centre in Belfast here have this full surround sound space where they do audio experimentation and performance. It's a proper use of all of the speaker arrays. kind of feels like it's peeling your head away and you can hear the audio everywhere there was a medical video that we had done where it was a proper operation cutting open the arm and you could see the tendons inside and stuff, but it was totally mute. And it was staggering to see how much the audio really added to the disgust of the thing. And it shone a light on the fact that actually we could probably shoot quite a lot of content, but play about with the audio and the audio would be a lot more visceral and be able to stimulate an awful lot more response in terms of having variations. And that's what we ended up doing.
0: In each showing of the film, the soundscape was unique, built dynamically throughout the screening, based on the physical responses being recorded from live viewers. This was a new type of cinematic experience that no one had ever tried before. They'd found the tip of the iceberg. Then they started diving deeper. Gawain got talking to Red Bull about how they could use this technology to do something brand new of their own, an immersive experience that would plunge audiences into the mind and body of an extreme sports athlete.
2: We figured that if you could gather all the data, the context data and the human data and process that for emotional data and then broadcast that with the content that is already being shot so you can see the context of where they are, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what challenges they're overcoming to be able to do these extreme things and see what the physiology and the, the cognitive state is doing at the same time. This would be unbelievably insightful to the coaching team and the athlete themselves and have the benefit of that, but also for the audience to be able to see.
0: They decided to use virtual reality, shooting in 360 degrees and drawing on the full visual, sonic and physiological perspective of the athlete.
2: We end up calling the project the hero feeling.
0: They chose to focus on an event that takes place in Northern Ireland each year. A mountain bike race called the Red Bull Fox Hunt. All the riders start at the top of a mountain.
2: There are thousands of mountain bike riders that all set off all at one go. And whoever is the fastest and best mountain biker at the time, they set off last. The aim is for the guy at the back to try and get past everybody and finish first. And it's insane.
0: Gawain and the team worked with some of the mountain bikers to record their experience doing the fox hunt, taking in as many data streams as possible. They measured the obvious things like heart rate and ECG. But then they went further.
2: We had the skin conductance off hands. We had breathing rate and respiration. And then we were getting all the altitude information. We were mics on the bikes for different audio that you could get and tilt. And um, obviously the 360 cameras that we had stacked on people as they took off down these trails.
0: Gawain's goal was to immerse the audience in every emotion and every physiological reaction a cyclist experienced while racing the trail. Seeing, feeling and hearing the race through the eyes, ears and bodily responses of a professional cyclist in real time. Now, instead of just watching an athlete perform and marvelling from a distance at their capabilities, Gawain had created technology that could act as a translator of empathy giving the audience a physical experience that mirrored what the athlete was feeling. Getting to the point where they can make this happen took a lot of research. They trialed the technology on zip lines, off-road racing, tandem jumping, and stunt plane flying. They had to work out whether it was even possible to record emotional data in this way.
2: There's a guy called Dr Gary McKeown from the Queen's School of Psychology here in Belfast. And he had suggested that actually what we need to do is have a novice and somebody experienced do something that is uh, exactly the same at the same time. Because what we would see then was, what, were there differences in the physiology? Was there differences in the way the cognitive load was processing and, and dealing with this? Or, or was it just free form and random and we might never be able to record this kind of data?
0: So that's when Gawain volunteered to be a passenger in a series of stunt plane rides. Experimenting with recording physiological and psychological data. Building a detailed emotional picture of the experience from the perspective of one novice and one experienced participant. All in the name of research, of course.
2: In the anticipatory phase, I'm absolutely cacking myself. I'm going, this is going to be about buzzing at the same time. And he's done this so many times, he's just jumping in and he's buzzing off the fact that I'm cacking myself. And he knows that he's going to do multiple barrel rules and really push it out for me. He's constantly talking to you to check that you don't throw up in the back of the plane. You want all right? Are you all right? Shall we go again? Are you all right? Because he doesn't want to have to clean it off when we get down. When they
0: looked at all the data they'd collected, they could see the whole experience laid out in the peaks and troughs of the graphs measuring each metric.
2: It was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating because getting ready to come into the experience, so it was interpreting and feeling, oh, something's coming, getting ready for it. Then it was the actual thing itself, and then there was the come off. And that cycle happened but the body metrics, in my particular stunt plane one, we phased, we completely phased in terms of the physiology that were going on.
0: Gawain and the pilot's emotional journey through the experience drew the same shapes on those graphs.
2: His heart rate was going about 20 to 30 beats per minute faster, but the motion and the movement was virtually exactly the same.
0: The pilot's heart rate was higher because of the physical exertion of flying the plane.
2: But a combination of his experience in cognitive load and being in control helped him be able to manage the whole thing. It was a real insight to physiology and cognitive load being so interwoven for those that are specialists in what they do.
0: So they discovered that by measuring multiple streams of biometric data at once, it was possible to build a real-time picture of a person's emotional state during an experience. Back in 2018, I invited Gawain and his team to come to Future Lab at Goodwood Festival of Speed, to conduct a similar experiment with some of the racing drivers on the famous hill climb, engaging with the drivers as they went through their paces, throwing incredible cars up the track. In this context, they found a really fascinating additional element in the cycle of physiological responses the drivers experienced.
2: That same anticipation, do it and come down, happened. But also what we hadn't seen before was the impact of crowd. Because as they came up the the hill climb, whenever they came to the point where they were looking at where the bridge was that we're going to go under and the stands on either side where all the people were, all of a sudden there was this spike came up so you could see where they got an adrenaline kick because now there was an audience viewing them as well. And that was a really interesting insight and was something that uh, Gary McLean, the uh, psychology guy at Queen's, had suggested might happen and then we saw it happen. So it was, it was lovely to see the, the different impacts and how a good sports person has an awful lot of psychological thinking to do. Can they handle the pressure of a crowd or can they not? Uh, can they deal with the, the exertion of the moment or not? And that, that probably separates the super elite from the good.
0: This kind of data can be used by coaching teams to chase those incremental improvements that can make all the difference between clinching a win or not.
2: When we did the Goodwood project, one of the guys explained it perfectly. He goes, you know, we've got all of this technology, all this data from the car, and you've got teams of people looking at banks of data but it stops dead when it comes to the person in the car. We don't have any data on the individual in the car. We don't have any data on the anticipation to the point of getting in the car, the race itself, or anything that's impacted them. It has a missing link in the chain, which is to have that human data component of it. And that kind of information would be really useful for the coach and the training staff to be able to try and align sleep, food, psychology, emotion, all these things.
0: It's clear that plugging into all this biometric data can be very powerful. But as we know, with great power comes great responsibility.
2: There's lots of people who want access to the data, and it's the person who's giving it. So the the sports person has to be comfortable in doing it. The next people that benefit, if you think of it in concentric circles, will be the coaching staff and whoever is the sponsor team that own this to be able to get the person onto pole position and win the races that's the first layer of concentric circles but then there's the people around that the broadcast the audience the people who want to consume this data and this knowledge and this insight and people would love to have that the broadcasters would love to have these extra components whether it's broadcasting to a second screen whether it's live on the tv or the bars or whatever but interestingly within that once you start to see the insight to this if somebody is having a bad day or they're having a bad season or they're really just not in the game or something's happening, their value as an individual within that team, within that brand, drops. Or the agent that's trying to negotiate their transfer, coming up to a transfer window, is going to have a nightmare.
0: So this kind of data can also be used in ways that are unintended or detrimental to individuals. Raising questions, as matters of data collection often do, about privacy and liberty.
2: There's a whole raft of ways this could be used. And each of them should probably need to be reviewed through the lens of who owns it, who benefits from it, who abuses it. And I think that's the same for any way that this kind of interaction data should be used.
0: When Gawain first started creating empathic technology using biometric data, he was pretty much motivated by the fun he was having doing it. It wasn't until a run-in, just after the horror film premiere at South by Southwest, that he began to think about the big picture ethics of what he was doing.
2: It was myself, Ben Knapp, and a guy called Miguel Ortez. The three of us flew out to go to South by Southwest. I was obviously there as a producer, a film producer, and so we were all out celebrating that night and get a few drinks in, I was at the bar, and this lady was talking to me about the project. And she was a media lawyer and lived in San Francisco, and she basically really freaked out at the whole idea of the thing. And I was there thinking, hey, we've cracked a whole new form of entertainment, this is going to be cool, look what we're able to do, think of all the messing you could do with people's heads and playing with audio and film and second screen stuff. And she's going, but this is horrific. This is horrific. Uh, You are Oppenheimer. You're the creator of uh, destruction. If this thing then goes from where you've built it on out, uh, these systems could be everywhere, reading everything, doing everything, manipulating us, controlling us.
0: Gawain had essentially helped create a whole new type of personal data. Data which could, in theory, be tracked, collected, and used in contexts way beyond the sports and entertainment realms he was playing in.
2: I hadn't thought of it like that before.
0: In the moment, he admits he was quite blasé about it.
2: Not a chance, that's ridiculous. I'm just a film producer, we're just doing cool stuff with media. other people stop that happening. But as this technology has progressed, as we've spent our time in this space over the last 10 years, it very much has stuck with me, that comment. And led us to be very, very vocal in data is people's data. It is their right to own that data and you should ask for it in those interactions. And we must have, if not standards, legislation, and a lot of conversation about this.
0: Gawain later connected with Brett Solomon, the director of Access Now, a nonprofit that works to defend and extend people's digital rights around the world. And through Brett, he met John Havens, director of the IEEE Global Initiative for Ethical Considerations in Artificial Intelligence and Autonomous Systems. Gawain and John started working to set up similar ethical standards for empathic technology.
2: We talked back and forth for a year to 18 months about what this could look like, and we then set up what's now P7014. There are 13 other standards we've been working on, but this is the 14th one. And it was a standard for ethical considerations in emulated empathy in autonomous and intelligent systems. A nice mouthful, obviously flows out easily.
0: The premise of these standards is to create limitations, boundaries and accountability for people building machines that gather information about our emotions.
2: And that's across the whole of the ecosystem, whether that's you conceptualising it, whether it's you researching it, whether it's you productizing it, or creating services with it.
0: Nowadays, Gawain also speaks to people about the importance of consent and data rights. Which matters because empathic technology is only going to become a bigger part of our lives.
2: CARS, for meeting the NCAP safety standards, across Europe by 2025, it's to be mandatory for driver monitoring systems to have capacity to understand if somebody's falling asleep or whether they're distracted. So their natural go-to is a camera. But there's a lot of investment going into other kinds of technologies, whether it's biometric radar that pings the skin uh, to try and measure your heart rate and your breathing rate. And in the smartwatch markets for fitness and health, the first place is looking at sleep. Then they start to of look at stress. So now we're starting to get an expansion just beyond going, "Hey, I'm doing step count." No, I'm getting heart rate. Is now, oh, now I'm looking at your general well being and different insights we can derive from this data, that will only increase as you get better battery life, as you have more sensors go into these things. In all of these, a single data stream is valuable, multiple data streams is insightful.
1: The future of healthcare is all about easy access to personalised data and in lots of detail. You know, we know that we can go online and we can find out what the weather's like in Jamaica, but you can't Google what's going on inside your own, you know, stomach.
0: As Gawain touched on, Healthcare is one of the main areas where accessing more and better data has the potential to radically impact our lives. It's why people wear fitness trackers, why they let their phones monitor sleep, step count and heart rate. Having all the information to see the full picture of your health, that's a game changer. As scientist Katie Coyle explains it, If we went to
1: an art museum and we were walking around huge pieces of art, if I covered one in brown paper and I say, what's going on in this picture? Well, you'll not be able to see anything or or tell me. If I say, okay, you can pluck 10 holes, you might be able to see a glimpse of color, but you've no idea what's going on in the image. And until I let you pluck another 30 holes and another 20 holes and another 50 holes, you start to reveal what the image is of and what is going on in that painting. You can't look in isolation. That is the
0: future of healthcare. By now, you've probably noticed that this podcast series is sponsored by a company called Randox. I've visited them quite a few times over the last few years, and every time my mind has been blown by the vision they have for the future of healthcare and the scale and speed at which they're innovating. They really are inventing the future, every day. For this episode, I wanted to spend a little more time with them, talking about the work they're doing, because one of their main areas of focus is increasing the amount of data each of us can access about our own health, and finding innovative ways to analyse that information so that we can actually see those vital microscopic signals we are constantly sending out that tell us exactly what's going on inside our bodies. Here's Katie Coyle, Principal Scientist on the Randox Health Team. I joined after I had
1: spent some time in Switzerland doing a chemistry PhD. Katie really loves chemistry. A self-professed nerd. I would recommend that anybody contemplating what should they study at university, if you can in any way study chemistry, that's what you should do. Everything in the world is just linked to chemistry and physics.
0: Katie joined Randox nine years ago to work on what a new vision of healthcare could look like. So here's what the company set out to do. They knew that blood samples contain a huge wealth of data about our bodies, information that can be used to diagnose suspected health conditions as well as to monitor people's health long term. But they wanted to revolutionise the way patient blood samples are tested. To do that, they developed a tiny piece of technology that lets them do more with a single blood sample than has ever been possible before hundreds
1: and hundreds of pieces of data about the health of your whole body. Teams of scientists then look after the mathematical algorithms that can interpret what do these patterns of data mean and report that back to
0: you really efficiently. The technology is called a biochip and it's a complete rethinking of how we can gather data from blood samples. The process we have now is pretty inefficient.
3: Most tests are performed using their own dedicated reagents. So, for example, if you're trying to test cholesterol, you have a a cholesterol reagent. It reacts and you get a certain reaction that you can then monitor.
0: This is David Martin, one of the senior managers at Randox. He's been at the company for over 30 years, so he's seen the biochip go all the way from concept to realisation.
3: In the case of the biochip, uh, we do all these tests collectively on the surface of a chip. The chip itself is a small ceramic chip, perhaps the size of a fingernail, so it's very insignificant. But we have developed technology to attach antibodies, to attach DNA, all sorts of biomarkers onto the surface of that chip. One of those chips has multiple test sites on its surface, upwards of several hundred in some of the chips that we're developing at the moment.
0: So that's a single ceramic chip, the size of your fingernail, that can be used to test potentially hundreds of data points. And before you freak out, no, it's not inserted into the body, it's just a tiny tile that stays in the lab.
3: But they're all on very specific locations on the surface of the chip, and whenever you add your sample, whatever's in your sample comes into contact with all of those test regions and ultimately can be linked to a light reaction
0: or, to get technical for a second, a chemiluminescent signal.
3: And the intensity of that chemiluminescence can relate to the concentration of the particular drug or the particular protein that you're trying to measure.
0: A specialised camera then detects the output of the signal.
3: You're generating potentially multiple sets of data at the same time using the same sample.
0: Whenever I visited the Randox laboratory, it's always amazing to see just how fast the teams are evolving this technology. And the potential makes my head spin. It's clear that what Randox are doing has the potential to change the lives of patients and clinicians in a big way.
3: You, 70% of the information that goes into a diagnostic decision by a doctor is based on blood tests. So it's, it, it is significant.
0: In the future, biochip technology could be used by GPs to test patient samples for a much wider range of biomarkers than is possible with the blood tests we have now. And as well as revolutionising tests in a diagnostic situation, the biochip can also be used for monitoring your health in an ongoing way over the course of your life. A little like an MOT on your car. Katie Coyle again. Really and truly,
1: the best time to check your health is when you're feeling pretty well. Katie says that first, you want to establish your health baseline. Everything within our bodies is so interlinked that it's really codependent on what's going on in all of the different systems. So, when you can take a look at the whole picture and measure everything at the one time, you can establish your health baseline. And you can also see where there's areas of potential damage or risk, or if things were left unattended to, would continue to develop into a
0: disease. So, it's moving towards a more holistic approach to health, one that's focused on preventing illness rather than just reacting once symptoms start to show. For Katie, working on this has had a very personal impact.
1: When I was in my early 20s, and we were starting to put together the packages of tests and the reports and working with our amazing scientists and working with some really key innovative doctors, we were obviously able to avail of these tests ourselves. My results didn't add up. I had a very, very healthy heart. I had very healthy kidneys. But my white blood cells were really low and it it almost didn't make sense why they were so low. I had very low iron and I had no stores of iron. And I had a few low B vitamins and, um, and,
0: and that was that at that time. Around a year later, Katie ran her full health profile again. Basically, turned out that I
1: had very high antibodies, which are linked to celiac disease. So I found out that I had the autoimmune disease, celiac, which means that I couldn't have any gluten at all.
0: Every time Katie ate gluten, bread, cookies, cake, pasta, her immune system responded by attacking itself.
1: And this constant attack of my immune system meant that my white blood cells, which would be the primary immune response in the body, were basically exhausted. And they were just so depleted that they were seriously low. If that test had been run on its own, just a full blood count, which includes white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, that would have been a really concerning result. They would have sent me to a specialist right away. Like, it would have been stress-inducing. It would have been a concern. Because I had 120 tests run at the time, there was peace of mind. People think, oh, I couldn't have all of that those things run because... Um, you'll find out that I have all these problems and you'll find out that I'm so unwell. And it's actually the opposite. Because you're getting the wealth of data, you're getting the wealth of information. My headache stopped, my brain fog stopped. I wasn't tired all the time anymore. You know, it was like a little kid putting on glasses for the first time. I was like, wow, is this how people are supposed to feel? Is this normal? And, and I was kind
0: of missing out the whole time. Having access to so many data points gave Katie the context she needed to protect her future health. But she needed that big picture view that only multiple data streams can provide. David says this technology is only going to offer us more and more visibility of our health data in the future.
3: To be perfectly honest, the sky's the limit. You know, At, at, at the moment, a typical biochip might have information from 10 to 20 different biomarkers, but we have versions of biochips under development at the moment whereby they're actually potentially detecting hundreds on a single chip, you know, which really is, is, is you know, Star Wars stuff.
0: The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Isis Thompson, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. If you'd like to experience the future of healthcare for yourself and find out more about the biochip tests Katie and David have been talking about in this episode, you can book an appointment now at a Randox Health Clinic. Just head to randoxhealth.com for more information the annual FutureLab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast.